Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Crocodile Bay and all the fancy resorts in the world. How many fly fishermen are here in America? No matter how hard you try, you can never be Cajun. And a phenomenal take on the environment. Part 2 with the author of South Florida Fishing Paradise, Jim Stenson. Clear the airwaves. The Lunker Dog is on the air. Are you ready? This is the Real Guy Podcast. This is the goofy part. <laughs> I didn't have a job. So and all I was doing was trying to find a job and go fishing. So there was a, there was a tackle shop. And actually, when I was in school, I worked at Kevin's, Kevin's Tackle Shop in Tallahassee. But when I got to Mobile and I, got, you know, I left the university, I went over and I applied at this place called McCoy's. It's a great fly shop, clothes, everything. It's huge. Just top quality. So he wanted to hire me to rebuild his, uh, actually not rebuild, but build him a website and take all the photography of everything in there. Then you got to match up the prices and create the algorithms and stuff, all this stuff. It was a time-consuming job. But I had a great fly shop in there. And the counter where you go out to pay for the stuff had this giant chalkboard on the back. And so it was like maybe October. And so I got this wild hair on my butt and I called started calling lodges and i called this lodge down in costa rica crocodile bay and so i put up there we're running this trip march you know Ooh. such and such such crocodile bay sign up or give it give it as a christmas present to one of your kids or husband approximately what year is this that was 17 years ago okay that's probably maybe about the maybe the first time I've heard of crocodile lodge probably 20 years ago so go, yeah. uh, just i just was trying to yeah. put it in perspective so uh, I call up, you know, I had 16 people sign up. And the owner really didn't even know what I was doing. <clears throat> and I didn't know what I was doing. So I called up <laughs> Crocodile Bay and said, I got 16 people plus myself would like to come down. And I, I said, how much is it going to cost? I thought I was going to have to pay. Right. He, so he sends me all this information, sends me invoices and stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. And my name wasn't on there. And so I called him up and I said, John, well, how come my name's not on there? He goes, oh, we're going to give, we're gonna give it to you, carte blanche. You don't have to pay. And so I'm thinking, wow, this is the greatest thing in the world. So I take these people down to Crocodile Bay. We're there for 10 days. We, we caught so many billfish on flies. So we come back, and I'm saying, God, that was fun. It didn't cost me anything. And so I started calling. I was going to call Deepwater K. And about that same time, Crocodile Bay calls me up, and he goes, Jim, where do you want me to send your commission check? Get out of here. And I said, What? He goes, where do you want me to send your commission check? I'm going, what commission check? He says, it's $4,900. And I'm going, 4362 Byron <laughs> Avenue, Mobile, Alabama, 36609. Did you get that when right? Can, when can I expect a check? And so then I called up Deepwater Canada, did the same exact thing. And when a guy had not talked to a Deepwater K, ended up eventually years later getting a marketing contractor, Deepwater K. His name is Paul Vladek. And so I called him up and I was making reservations for a certain amount of people. I think it was like seven or eight people at the time. And uh, we booked the dates and everything. And I said, uh, when can you send me my commission check? 
He says, well, what address do you want me to send it to? And I'm like, <laughs> so now, at least lay down. Now, did, did, were, they, were, were these um, incentives, the programs, the incentives that the Dodgers were giving, is it something that they had that you just no, didn't so, know about? I didn't know about it. I, know. I had no idea you could get paid for taking people fishing. So, so Okay, so the program was, was intact. Oh, yeah, it's always been But you been just intact. didn't know about it. No, I had no idea. Okay. And so all of a sudden, now I'm getting these checks, and so I'm... I have like five trips up on the chalkboard now. And the owner comes in and he goes, what the hell is this stuff? And I said, well, you know, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm out the door. <laughs> I said, I said um, I'm going to create a travel company. And there were other travel companies before me. There were lots of them. I just never knew they existed. And so I went home and I you know, started whacking away on a computer for two or three weeks. And I reached out to some writers and stuff and got some photographs and started putting it together. And then I, but I didn't have a lot of people at the time. It was just online, so I didn't have a lot of customers. So I started going to fly fishing club meetings, used to go to trade shows all over the country, and I'd rent a booth and have posters up, and it just started growing. And uh, trying to explain that to my wife was a very difficult thing. She goes, you're going to get paid to take people fishing. I go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I get paid damn well. <laughs> you know, I get 15 to 20% commission. I get my flights paid for. I get my food free. And my customers are such good fly fishermen. The guides take care of them. They don't, you know, that I can fish with somebody, anybody I want to. And I don't have to deal with all the stress the guides do and the lodge do. Phenomenal. I'm just another customer. And so it just... <coughs> blew up you know my my brain just kept going every day I was coming over with a different idea and uh, I was like god this really works so, so that's how it started in Sweetwater Adventures now how many people work there or work with you I should say about 16 and how many lodges do you deal with now off and on I can book into about 188 lodges in 79 countries all I can say is that's awesome and congratulations oh thanks um, it's work because work, cus work. customers are customers. Works work. I mean, it's uh, the, the problem is, oh, God, I shouldn't go down this road. The problem is you have. The podcasts are made for going down these roads. <laughs> customers are customers. 10% of my customers are really, really good fly fishermen. And, 10 for, and the rest are moderate, you know. They're moderately good. They're not in that 10%. No, they're not in that 10%. <laughs> and the problem is they want to do these things. They see them on TV on these Sunday, Saturday, Sunday morning infomercials, and they go nuts. You know, they want to go down. They've never cast a fly to a permit, but they want to go down and get a half dozen permanent Casablanca. And that's 7500 bucks. They want to go fishing on the Alta. That's $22,000 a week after you paid this $130,000 Alta club fee, if you can even get in. Yes. And, they only, and to them, a week is three days. Right. So you're spending all this god-awful money, and they expect product. I mean, they expect success. And, you know, it's... God, you're fishing for some of the most difficult fish in the world to catch, okay? Right. And you, they have no... You, you've got to do this for a while. You've got to somehow be able to intuitiveness of all this. You've got to be able to read water. You've got to be able to, how to, you got to know how to wade rivers. You've got to know how to spay fish or swing flies. You've got to know where to throw the fly. I mean, you got to know the habitat of the fish you're fishing for, and that's just the beginning, right? And and it, it and it's a sport. Oh, it is. And in any sport, you have to practice and you have to apply yourself. And then when people don't do that, I can see what you're saying is they expect that to happen for them, and yeah. can't. No, 
It's like Chad Williams. I mean, he'd stand in a mirror for three hours before a baseball game swinging a baseball bat. Mm-hmm. Just swinging a baseball bat, swinging a baseball bat. And he does the same thing if you look at the old Chad Williams Atlantic salmon fishing videos online. He's, it's, it's, it's a method. It's a process. You know, he's, it's almost a science. And uh, the American sportsman, I'm, going, I'm headed up to Mattapedia in July, and I've got videos of the old uh, American sportsman, Kirk Gowdy, and Jimmy, uh, Jimmy Carter and his wife are up there fishing for Atlantic salmon. They're catching these 35, 40-pound Atlantic salmon. And it's because, actually, even though he was president, they were, both of them were really good fly fishermen. But it's, it's, it's a process, and it's not something, you know, it's not something you, you can do at any stage of your life. I mean, the older you get, you, you have limitations. Sure. I mean, a lot of people can't wade rivers. They have, to, they have to be held up by a guide or they have to fish out of a drift boat. I try to tell my customer, when somebody says, I want to go Atlantic salmon fishing, my first question out of my mouth is, have you ever been Atlantic salmon fishing? And 90% of them say no. They saw it on TV. They read about it in a magazine. Right. And these Saturday morning infomercials, they don't, they don't realize, but there's probably six weeks invested in filming one show. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, it's, it's, you've got to, it's like you watch Flip Pallet show. I mean, you know, when Walter's Cake Chronicles, it looks like he goes out there and every cast he makes, he, wa- he wallops a fish. Right. But it doesn't. It's, it's, it's just they've been filming for four or five days. Right. And, uh, but sometimes the best way to do it is if you can convince them to go, say, trout fishing in Missouri. You're fishing with a guide. You're fishing a river has more rainbows and browns than any other river in America. So you get a really good opportunity to catch them. You know, they can start swinging flies. They can throw nymphs. You know, whatever they want to do, throw streamers. And the guide's there to help them. And the guide knows how to put them on fish. And you got more fish per mile than, like I said, any river in America. That's what they need to do. Okay? They don't need to spend six, seven, eight, nine, ten thousand dollars and flush it down the toilet. Even though most of these people have money. I mean, most of them, you know, it's... They can afford to do it, but it's just not the right move. No, but if they would... It's not even necessarily their fly casting. I mean, that's a a big part of it. I mean, a lot of times... Put it this way. When I I was publishing Contemporary Sportsman, Contemporary Wing Shooter, I was working with uh, Trout Unlimited, and we were trying to determine how many fly fishermen are really in America, okay, for marketing purposes. And we were trying to figure out how many people would actually join Trout Unlimited and how many people actually spend how much time in the water. So once you boiled all this down and you look at all the statistics, there's about 535,000 fly fishermen in America. That's not a lot. But what happens is if you sort of narrow it down, narrow it down, narrow it down, there's only so many fishermen that fish two or three times a year. Then it's you know maybe four times a year. Then it's five times a year. Then the number is the higher the number of times they fish, the lower the number of people. I mean, people are in, in, in the tube. Right. And so you get down to the bottom, bottom, and you got thirty-five, forty thousand people that are actually serious about fly fishing, but do this five, six months out of the year. That's a small number of people. Right. And you're looking at all the lodges. You're looking at the fly companies. I I have retail licenses with about thirty-one different fly companies. Uh, Raz, thanks to Raz Reed. Uh, he's he's a great guy, but you know, it's, it's, it's just a process, and it's difficult for some people to sit there and watch other people catch fish. But if you sit there and watch these people and sort of take the time to understand how they're actually doing this or their thought press doing it, then you get better. Sure. And the more time you spend on the water, the better you get at it. Sure, sure. The, the problem is, it's like an old Cajun told me one time. I went out fishing with him on a flats boat in, in Louisiana for redfish, and I love New Orleans. I mean, I'm a... <laughs> I'm a New Orleans nut. But, you know, when we're out there and we're catching all these reds, we're pitching flies to 25, 30-pound 
reds. And I'm sitting there, God, I'd love to be Cajun. And he goes, Jim, you can't get there from here. <laughs> and I said, what the hell do you mean? He says, you can come to Louisiana for the rest of your life, day in and day out, and you'll never be Cajun. And it sort of dawned on me, that's, that's, that's right. You know, there's, just, there's some things in life, there's just not enough time in your life to do it, I mean, to get good at. And, and when it comes to being Cajun or non-Cajun, there's no way you're going to do that anyway. That's a, that was a great, great way to put it. Yeah, but it, it's really true. It's like I have friends that are just world-class photographers, and I bring them on these trips because I use the photos on my website and stuff. And they get to come for free, and they get to fish, but they're mostly there to take photos. And uh, another one, uh, Mark Lance, he just died, believe it or not, of uh, melanoma. World-class photographer, he used to write for dozens of magazines. World-class world athlete, he used to mount, ride mountain bikes in Europe and the races and things like that. And woke up one day and had a problem. He was, his side of his head was hurting and went to the doctor and had a melanoma in his brain. Three weeks later, he was dead. But he used to he used to talk to me all the time about shooting photos and shooting photography. And I have a lot of photography equipment, but I don't want to be a photographer. Right. I want to be the guy in the river <laughs> shooting the pictures. And that's you know it's the same way with fishing. The older you get, the less time you have, and the less time you have to really get good at something. Because most people, it's not something you can walk out there and do right. instantly. You've got to, you've got to learn. You've got to sort of. You got to enjoy it because there's more than just fly fishing. I mean, there's the environment, there's the water quality, there's everything that goes in it. Hell, you could talk about geology and astrophysics. Everything that goes into our planet, it controls different things. And when things get skewed, you know, things don't necessarily work out right anymore. The environment—that's one of our biggest problems. Right. Over my problem with the environment is when people, when. When people decide they want to do something, it's like you have this, con remember them Russian dolls where you take it apart and each one's got another doll inside of it and another doll inside of it gets smaller and smaller? Yeah, yeah. That's like we have this concentric circle of people that in the outer ring, they go, yeah, we know, we, we know the environment's being screwed, okay? Um, but they were never willing to do anything or, you know, throw any money or any effort into you just run the outside looking in. Yep. Then you've got these other concentric circles that keep going in and in and in, and, and the numbers get smaller and smaller and smaller, and you finally get down to this last pool of people, and you wake up one day and you realize we're only preaching to the choir. You know, the people that we talk, talk to are on the same level we are, and that doesn't do any good. I mean, we already know what, what we think is wrong. And so the idea of sort of building out and getting more and more people involved is one of the most difficult things in the world. I mean, it's, it's, you wish you could. I mean, you wish you could just wake up and stand on a platform one day and scream bloody murder, wake up and smell the roses. But if you, if you look at the way our environmental issues are held anywhere in the United States, especially Florida, it, they don't want to solve the problem. It's like Okeechobee, Kissimmee, all the sugar industries, citrus industry, cattle industry, all this runoff, perhaps herbicides, pesticides, fertilizers, all this crap. We know what the problem is. Okay, now they're talking about building a... Uh, reservoir below Okeechobee. So what are we going to do? After you take all this water, you put it down in a reservoir, and then you're going to have two lakes that are full of algae, all this other stuff. It just doesn't make sense. They don't want to attack the core problems because that affects the money. Right. And it's, that's all it is. It's, it's, it's people that are making the decision, or the developers, the politicians, the investors, the banks, the lawyers. The, it just goes on and on and on. And none of these people want to want to go backwards. They always want to, 
it's hard to explain because I've talked to so many of these people and they say, well, it'll never happen, it'll never happen, it'll never happen. In reality, they're right. I, that's what this book is really about. It's what was but will never be again. And it's, it's you know, in some small way, it's, I'm just trying to, to get people an idea of it, how good it was at one time and in, in order for us to get to that point or even just move to, move to bar some, it's going to take effort from people. It's mm -hmm. going to take lots of effort from people. And I'm not saying these people aren't out there. It's just a small group. And like I said, we have a habit of just, you and I are preaching to ourselves. Right. You know? now, and it's so frustrating. And I'm sure that you've looked at it you know, a lot longer than I have just because you you know, you got 10 years on me. And I love to talk to guys that have more years on me because I think of the way I thought when I was 35. And I think of the way I thought when I was 45. And then, you know, now that I'm cl getting close to 55, you know, I think completely different. So when I get a guy like yourself, you know, that was able to study things and look at things a decade longer than me, guys like Kantner that have a decade on you, mm -hmm. and on and on and on, I've, I, I can't get enough of that. And I think that especially through these long-form media like books and podcasts, that that's the way we can grow the circle. Because of digital media and the different forms of digital media, I've seen the headcount grow in the last three or four years. I've never seen before in the history of me paying attention to water quality and the environment. And I honestly think that the headcount is, should be our one and only goal, and it ultimately will be the only way we ever get any type of victory. And I look at the different foundations and how they'll segment themselves, which I don't agree with, only because we don't have the head count for that yet. Like, you can't make a football team and have an offense, a defense, and a kicking team if you only have eight players. No, I know. And only... Now, do I see kids that are 26, 27, 28 that aren't like crazy, you know, lib type hippie environmentalists, but kids that are 27, 28, 35 years old that have listened to you or read your book mm -hmm. or know about Kantner or <laughs> Copeland? Or, and then from the backside, because they, they'll feel like I'm never going to get that, then from the backside, they'll work. And I'm seeing it for the first time in my life that the younger kids are getting it. And just maybe, <laughs> with a little bit more prayer, the headcount will get at least to a point where, and I think the state of Florida should be the leader in it, considering we were the leaders in destroying what we had. Yeah. We can be the leaders. I'm not saying we're going to make it like it used to be. But we, sh we should be able to have water that we can swim in, fish can live in. It's not, to me, that's not a super high bar. No. And, and most of the fish, it's like, I, I spend, a, well, up until the hurricane came through, I usually spend five or six trips a year in Sanibel and Captiva chasing slope and tarpon. But they've lost in the last 10, 15 years 99% of their seagrasses. And they've lost almost all their snook. And, if, and that's, see, that's another problem, too, is when you, when you talk about environmental politics, I can sit here and talk about this all day long, but when you're talking to somebody that doesn't know anything about the environmental politics, they they don't want to hear all of this because I think at some level they think they're overwhelmed. 
And yes. they, 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 when you're talking about envir the environment, you have to almost have lived through what it was to make somebody understand what it could be. And I'm not sure, you know, even at, in the book I sit there and, and talk about, I'm terrified of saying what I want to say. Because I, but I need to say it. I want to stand up on the soapbox and scream it from the loudest roof. But I know because our government, our state government, even though it doesn't matter if you like or dislike the, who's in government, they don't have that same, what it's growth and development. It's, it's essentially it's the ideology to cancer cell. It's the same ideology, growth and development. And every time you build a new road, it's like I-75, every time you build a new road, you have all these off-ramps. And every time we have an off-ramp, then you've got to have a gas station. Then you have somebody who works there. Then it starts to grow and grow, and you've got a little city, and then you've got to start building houses. And every time you, every time you enlarge that highway, you take out 25 or 30 foot swath and add then another off, you know, the, the, the gravel road on the side, whatever you want to call it, the off ramp. But then also now you've got six lanes, eight lanes, 12 lanes. And if somebody ever took a damn measuring tape and just measured the length of the width of the road and the length of the road and where it goes, you'd be amazed at how many millions and millions of acres are eaten up by highways. Right. But then you, all these little cities start popping up. Then you've got to enlarge the highway again and build off ramps, on ramps, and it just goes on and on and on. And it's like you have these sores and they just start and they go boom, 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 boom. Then you've got these big cities. And it's like Orlando and Tampa are just about one city now. Right. And, you know, f essentially from north of Palm Beach, uh, maybe 100, 150 miles, you've got Solid City all the way down to Homestead. Yep. And the keys aren't much different. Yeah. A, uh, this new uh, Brightline train that goes down the old Andrews Avenue corridor, anybody can now take the train from Palm Beach to Miami. That same train is going to now go to Orlando. So if you look at what's happened between Miami and Palm Beach, that's what's going to happen between Palm Beach and Orlando. And yeah. you can follow that train track. But if you take the train right now from Miami to Palm Beach, which is the route that it has, there isn't one break of green space yep. in that entire area. And I was on that train about two years ago and there was a lady behind me. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on, and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. As we went through uh, Delray to, say, Boynton, neighborhood gets pretty rough, and it looks like little Guatemala or something down there. And the lady was in awe. She had no clue that it was even there. And you could hear them talking, like, this, this doesn't even look like Florida. This doesn't even mm -hmm. look like the United States. But it took that train ride where they weren't driving on a highway where they could actually see where the hell they live. And it was eye-opening to them. And I was listening to the conversation. I was floored. I was like, this lady didn't know? Right. I mean, it's Tampa's got some really bad sections. Orlando's got some incredibly bad sections. You just... We have... I'm going to sound like an asshole. We have <laughs> runaway 
Some of my best friends are assholes. We have run, <laughs> runaway population growth in the world. It's not just here. Right. I mean, if you go to Europe, all these countries are suffering from the same thing. I mean, mass migrations from the poor countries into the cities and stuff. But the problem is when they migrate, the cities don't know how to deal with it. And the people don't know how to communicate with the people to deal with it. So the only way left is crime. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane. And now we live in a country that we're getting rid of the police and we're paying people not to steal stuff. Think about that. It's crazy. It's the most insane thing I've ever seen. And people, you know, you, you, you get arrested, they take you in, you're out the same day, you get arrested, they take you in, you're out the same day, it goes on and on and on and on. And eventually after they kill someone, they, they're still released. And it, it, it's just the most insane thing I've ever seen. And in that type of an environment, you have no control over what the environment's going to be like. I mean, there are certain parts of this, this country that we just... People like you and I and Steve, George, and, and, and people who believe in the environment. And there are a lot of people out there and believe in the environment. They're just scattered upon different groups and stuff. And I think politics splits people, even um, the environmental groups. If purposely. Could, yeah, if you could just leave the politics out of it, we could probably get a lot more accomplished. But even then, I mean, it's like Ed, Edward Abbey wrote all these books about uh, Phoenix. And when Phoenix is really small, and now you look at Phoenix and it's, it's half the state. I mean, it, it's just insane. He wrote a book about the apocalypse in Phoenix. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the things that he said were really true. I mean, it's just like Gary Snyder, Pulitzer Prize poet, teaches at Stanford. He's 92 years old. There's videos online with him and uh, uh, Wendell Berry talking about this stuff. And, you know, it's, it's got to the point where people, people no longer think that we can stop it. Mm -hmm. Okay? And... There's absolutely no way to force government to do it because, you know, it's like this, this explosion in, in Ohio with a train. Right. And it took him three weeks to get out there just to come out and say, well, this sucks. Right. You know? yeah, and it was, it was those geniuses that decided to do the whole thing. It's the crazy, some of the craziest stuff that I've ever seen. Do you, did you watch the Yellowstone series? Some, <laughs> some of it. I liked it. Uh, it's, it's just weird that, you know, I mean, that's, you know, a Montana story and... But it's this, it, you could you could fill in the blanks, mm -hmm. and that story goes on and on and on and on and on. And I was just I'm just wondering if people when they because it was so, so popular that the, and they were watching that if they could fill in the blanks in their own environments in their own neighborhoods in their own states in their own passions that were getting um, you know uh, crushed. And to me, at 54 years old, I look I watched the series and I. I could fill in the blanks and say, okay, you know, that's like Florida, and it's very similar, it's the same story. I, I'm wondering if the rest of the country can interpret it that way. I, I think every state's different because Florida people come down here to retire. Right. Okay. They come down and live, live out the rest of their life. They've been living with politics and environmental issues their whole life. And, you know, they finally get some money to come down here. They can lay on the beach and go down a lot about that about sea and they feel safe. And, you know, it's, it's hard to ask these people to participate because, one, they're not from Florida. I mean, that's the biggest problem is they're not from Florida at all. And it's hard to convince somebody that spent their life, say, up in New York or the Bronx or New Jersey or Connecticut or someplace like that in massive crime and, and all sorts of issues. And they come down here to get away from that stuff. And the last thing they want to hear is, okay, could you mind giving us your time and energy and money and help us fix the environment? But the problem is, I've, I've always looked at Florida as a, uh, 
What's the word I want to use? I'm trying to be very nice here. Um, you don't have to be. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> my wife might hear this. You know, it, it's there's a caring capacity of every environment. You know, and every environment's different. You go back to 1800s, 19, early 1900s. Florida was was the most incredible state on the planet. There was a uh, uh, scientist named John Quinkle Small. He wrote a book in the early 1900s called uh, From Eden to Sahara. And what had happened is he was a, a zoologist and a, and a botanist, and he came down three or four times a year into North Florida and Central Florida and worked his way south, and they were naming plants and samples and animals and all this other stuff. And they were driving down roads that were flooded, and this would trucks with their cars or Model T's and stuff were falling apart. But they built campers and stuff, and they didn't have any bug spray, they didn't have any of this stuff. And so they were just cataloging all this stuff, and this was in like 1898. Then he came down again 10 years later for, for the museum he works for in, in Oxford. And, was it Oxford? Could have been Cambridge. But, uh, so anyway, he comes down, and all of a sudden he sees giant swaths of trees gone swaths of land gone you know it's just absolutely gone and so he wrote another book from Eden to Sahara chronicling just in that 10 years how much botanical uh, plants and animals that we've lost and how much habitat for animals we lost in the degradation of the watershed okay and that's in the 1900s for Christ's sake so then comes along there's another guy from University of Florida wrote a book I can't remember the name of it right now but it's essentially 50 years later sort of reopening what John Conkle Small wrote. Then you got Archie Carr, a naturalist in Florida. I just actually, last year, I wrote a, they asked me to write an environmental piece for the Mobile Bay Magazine, and I did it on Archie Carr and the turtle research he did. And he was a zoologist, he was actually born in Mobile, Alabama. His father was a minister at the Presbyterian Church down on Government Street. And he eventually ended up going to the University of Florida for a couple of years, then he went to Harvard, and he got his PhD at Harvard, and he comes back. Him and Edward O. Wilson were both born in Mobile. So he comes back to Florida and goes to work for the University of Florida. He opened up the first zoology program. And so then he wrote, uh, uh, I don't know, six, seven books on turtles. Windward Road, uh, such an excellent fish. And it just goes on, and essentially, he spent his life convincing governments in foreign lands, even from Texas to Central America, down to Mexico, all over the world, he convinced these countries not to kill and eat turtles, and because the turtle population was almost on the brink. And so now we have all these sea turtles, we have all these nesting sites all over the country, and, you know, People are turning out lights or doing everything they can during nesting season to help the turtles. Well, then he wrote a book called A Naturalist in Florida, essentially where he was trying to, it was a book where he was trying to stay positive, but at the same time hoping that people would sort of filter out the positive stuff and understand what he's really talking about, how much was lost, especially the Everglades. I mean, you go back to 1802, the Everglades was eight and a half million acres. Right. And now we're down to 1.1 million acres. We no longer have any mammals in the damn Everglades because of the damn... Uh, snakes, all the invasive snakes and all the invasive species. You know, it's, 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 it's so out of control, it's like a horror movie. Right. It really is. If people, you know, you know who Borsky is, Tim Borsky? I do. Yeah, him and I are pretty good friends. We talk about this all the time, and he's a, he is a snake nut. Man loves snakes. I mean, it just, it's in his blood. His kids love snakes. 
<laughs> I mean, he, and, you know, he drives me absolutely, I won't even go down to his house because I don't know how many snakes he's got in his house. <laughs> you know, he's always showing me pictures of all these snakes under his garage, under his car, just came down out of a tree, and I'm going, no, thank you. Um, I, there's a longer story to this, but I won't tell it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, have to make this two parts. <laughs> he, he's really a nut when it comes to snakes, and he loves them. I actually wrote a biography for, on, uh, on Tim Borsky when I, he left Wisconsin. I, did, I didn't know much about him. I heard a podcast they were, you know, Tim was part of, and I learned, a, you know, a good bit about him. But, uh, I did go out, um, with a state licensed Python contractor. <laughs> And, and and got my python one night um uh matt briggles we did a podcast about it but it's just uh, to your to your point who the hell ever would have thought there'd be a state licensed python contractor in the state of florida but here we are in today's day and age look how many invasive species of plants we have and that's another thing these people that create gardens in people's houses these companies that come out and new plants and all this stuff it, it, about 50, 60 percent of the plants in South Florida are now non-invasive species, or invasive species, and a lot of that, to be honest, a lot of that comes from hurricanes and the seeds coming in from other countries. And it's like the armadillo; there's no way to start stop the armadillo. They just walked from Texas and came in. But and there's a book I can't remember his name. He was the, in the biology department when I was at FSU. But he wrote a book on Florida about all the invasive species, and this was about 30 years ago, and it's about that thick. And you start reading it, and it's just, it's just, it gets sickening. And you, you look at what we've lost, and you know what happens when they build these cities and they build these roads and stuff, they go in and plow everything over. Then they come in and put their own version of what vegetation they think should belong. And you know, some of it's good or bad. I mean, it's like the geckos and lizards, and the, it just goes on and on and on. It does. And it's like, you know. You know, it, there's a um, there's a small bright side to this that's happened in South Florida, and my and I'll explain it the way I see it. All these invasive species we got the snakehead, the clownfish, <laughs> the peacock bass. Um, well, this goes on and on. All the different cichlids and tilapias, and there's even piranhas. But the city kids in Broward and Dade County are fishing for these things, and they're fanatics about it. So there's, you know, I mean, that's the other side of the story is that the invasives are actually keeping the fishing kids alive. You know how we got the, the cichlids, the buying cichlids and stuff? I do not. Well, I mean, the, I mean from it, what I was told is that all this shit came from people's aquariums. No, well, part of that's true. But what happened is, I'm, I'm going to go back to Flagler and his railroad. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this guy, he wanted to come down and build a railroad to Key West. The people in Dayton Broward County, or Dayton Broward County, said no. We don't want a railroad for our town. We don't want all these tourists coming down from New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut. And so every time it came up in the referendum, they voted no. There was this lady down there on Brickell Avenue and had a huge home with a lake in the back of her yard. Okay? So she was from New York City and she wanted to train. So she gets behind those hires about twenty different attorneys all over the place and she gives them all the money to go up and buy all the bits and pieces of land in order to have the train to go through Dayton Broward County and eventually go down to Key West. So even though the people in Dayton Broward County voted no for the train, she sold them the property and Flagler built his railroad anyway. To celebrate, her and her husband go to Africa, okay? 
they're on this huge lake. The tent's set up, and they're on, you know, they're on, uh, what do you call it? When people go to Africa to hunt a... Uh, safari. Safari. <laughs> and she, she wakes up one morning, it's a cool morning, and she looks out over these lakes. And there's tens and tens of thousands of hydrilla and flowers, okay, pop up. She fell in love with these damn things. So she went and bought 50 or 60 50-gallon barrels and had them filled with the lake water. And, the, and the, the people that worked for the safari went out and got the plants and put them in the barrels and put them on the ship when she came back. And she dumped them into her lake behind her house. Fast forward to today's time, and we're spending, what, $3 billion a year to clean out our lakes with hydrilla? <laughs> Just because of Flagler's Railroad. I never heard that before. True story. That's awesome. I got another one for <laughs> After the Civil War, Grant, there was a, from Texas to North Carolina, South Carolina, was the largest old growth longleaf wiregrass habitat in the world. Pine trees. We had ivory billed woodpeckers. We had uh, Carolina parakeets. We, we had so many birds. And there were probably, at that time, probably three, four hundred ivory bills left. Okay, so there's a guy named Tanner, and he goes in and does all this research and counts them and stuff. So he comes out because ivory bills only, only make noise, only call in the wintertime. In the summer, they're really, they just hunker down in the trees, and they don't make a lot of noise. They still feed and stuff, they just don't make the noise. And so anyway, Tanner was documenting all these nests and stuff, and so then he... The winter was over, so he had a, he had a summer off, so he went to Florida and started working odd jobs in forests and things like that, and he was going to go back in the spring. But the part he was working on, after the Civil War, okay, Grant had complete control of the South. We had no government. It was all done from out of Washington. There's a track in Texas. It goes all the way across the Mississippi, up about 150, 200 miles to the north. Beautiful place. Just it's Eden. There's a sewing machine company in Chicago, Illinois, called Singer Sewing Machine. Grant sold all that land with all that old growth forest for like a dollar fifty an acre to the Singer Sewing Machine Company. They came in and they clear cut everything before Congress could set it aside as a and not let Grant get away with it. So it's called a singer track. Now the only thing that grows there is soybeans. Okay. Fast forward about another 10 years. All our cedar trees from Cedar Key through Okeechobee north through the, uh, St. John's in that area in there, Grant sold all our cedar trees to a pencil company in Maine <laughs> for about two twenty-five an acre. Think about that. They went in and they cut them all. Crushed them. There was still some left there because a lot of them were in lakes and stuff. They didn't have any way to get out there and get them. But the ones close to shore, because there's like three different species of, of, of cedars. But the ones they wanted, the big cedars that were easy to get, and it, it's just an amazing thing. And yet, nobody said a word. I mean, everybody just thought it was just the way to land. And you look at the way Florida was developed. I mean, starting all the way back in the 1800s when they started, you know, when, when the Spanish first left, when the Calusa disappeared, they started taking all the, the logs and the, the infrastructure out of the Everglades. And then when they got better equipment and better, better opportunities to do this, they took out all the hammocks. There's only like three or four real hammocks left, and most of them have been plowed over by hurricanes. And they had to go back in and re replant them and replant the seeds. There's one on Brookle Avenue. There's like two of them in Miami that are really famous. But 
Nobody seems, nobody follows, okay, who cares, whatever. Right, it's another page in the book. And it's just, I mean, you look at the, all the way down Florida. I mean, we have maybe what, 10%, 12% of the original vegetation left. You know, the rivers are dammed and diked. They took out the oxbows and the Kissimmee River just so they didn't flood, flood, flood anymore when it was supposed to flood. Right. That's what stopped Okeechobee from flooding. You know, if they'd have left the oxbows in, they wouldn't have had to worry about the dam and dike Okeechobee because the water would have backed up. But no, they wanted to grow oranges. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing against oranges, believe me, I like oranges. But the idea, most of our oranges come from California. Right. So why do we need to grow them in Florida? Because they grow them in Florida and they ship them to California. Does that make any sense? <laughs> I, I, I quit trying to make sense of the state of Florida. Well, it's, it's, it's every state. Right. I mean, it's not just Florida. Uh, we just happen to be, I mean, it's like right now, we're having this mass migration out of the northeast to midwest again. But we've had, you know, dozens of these migrations before. But they keep coming. And they keep coming. And they're getting bigger and bigger. And um, I don't know, the last number I threw around was 400,000 a year coming. And then that's about the size of Orlando. Yeah. So I tell people, I says, dude, we're putting a new Orlando here every single year. Yeah. But I tell you what we're not putting here every single year. There's more real guys, more Jim Stensons of the world. Well... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I'm not a popular person in some circles, put it that way, because I, I go on these long diatribes because I just do not understand why we can't do something. I mean, it, but it, but everything's ruled out of Tallahassee. I mean, it, they're politicians, they're developers, they're there to make money, and they're always trying to bring in more and more people. More people, and with those people, they have more funding, and they can dedicate 100% of their time we're guys like you and me, if we're lucky, we can give the environment 10% of our time. And, and those the are best. the movers, right? That's yeah. the best, the best can give 10%, and that's what we're fighting against. That's what I try to write about. I mean, that's one of the things that drives my writing. But I understand that when you're writing, it doesn't matter if it's a book, it doesn't matter if it's an article, you cannot be negative. I mean, you can be sort of, you can, you can be negative and positive in the same way. You know, what you can, you can try to motivate people not criticize people yeah in the in the in the in the way you conversate like for instance in this interview here the audience doesn't get beat up and overwhelmed by environmental issues mm -hmm. why because we can talk about the fishing and we can talk about growing up and the good things and the fun things that happened guys like Cantner, guys like copeland so we're not overwhelming people with all this environmental information and this heavy shit but at the end of every recording, they were able to take a little bit, digest it, understand what it is, and then can move on and, like you said, keep it real positive. Yeah, that's the only way. Because there's really no need to be negative because if you're negative, uh, and, and I don't mean negative as, as you're totally upset about what's happening, but you just can't be negative when you're talking to people because people don't want to be preached to. Right. You know, they want to be, they, the people that want to get involved want to get involved because it's something they want to do. Not necessarily because I'm screaming at them. Right. You know, and I try so hard when I write not to do that. And if you knew the pages my wife ripped out of my books, <laughs> you'd understand. So you get, you get, uh, your wife is a, is a editor, live-in editor. Yes. Uh, she's, uh, <laughs> she's, uh, she's a very bright, bright woman. Uh, very bright. And uh, she writes really well. She's actually writing three, uh, a trilogy right now called Panda. 
and it, it's essentially uh, about a fictitious island in the Bahamas that uh, all these filthy rich people live on. And it's it's it, it, it would take forever to talk about this, but it's it's really interesting. And she's been rewriting this since she was 12 years old. Now, not to get pry into your personal life, but are you in one of those relationships where the kind of opposites, like? I know a lot of people, oh, are yeah. the, like the wife's like a crazy lib and the other guy's like a crazy conservative, but together they're able to make it work? Well, my wife's not political. She's German. Uh, her father worked for Siemens for years as a particle physicist, and uh, my wife stays clear of politics. One thing, she doesn't watch news because it's so depressing, Yeah. and she doesn't want to think about it. But as far as being opposites, yeah. We're probably about as opposite as any two people on the planet. But I don't we, know how that works, but it's... But we it's, love each other. Yeah. I mean, I would, I've been married close to 30 years. And, uh, you know, it's, I, 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 can't imagine, I can't imagine having another life. That's awesome. Jim, I can't thank you enough. We'll do it an hour and 40 minutes. I'm going to break this up. We're going to do two episodes. And um, uh, I'm going to promote the book at the beginning the end of both episodes. I think it's great that one, that you're in love with writing so much. I think it's great er about what you're writing about. And I think because of your passion for writing, um, you've been able to do things that other people just dream of. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of it's luck. A lot of it's just, it's, it's, it's growth. You know, when I, I, I got to be honest, I even write about it in the When we were kids, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I would hate to tell you how bad we were. Uh, you know, we didn't think anything about the environment. We just, you know, we didn't think about that. Just thirty, forty pop, and I'm gonna sell them in a heartbeat. Okay. I remember. I, I'm not gonna say that, but I remember. Well, killing fish to put in the Met tournament was normal then. Yeah. I did it. I mean, it was still in my yeah. lifetime. You know, it was normal. Kill a hundred and forty-pound tarpon to enter in the Met. I know. That was one good thing about Boca Grande and all the Boca Grande tarpon tournaments. They finally, you weren't allowed to kill them anymore. Yeah. And you're talking about a kid that used to go out and fish the Boca Grande tarpon tournament, not to win the money, but to catch the tarpon, throw him in a chest freezer, and on that Friday and Saturday night, we'd take him out in the boat, take him 11 miles offshore, hang him over the side, and rake him with a hoe, wait for the sharks to come in, and then we'd fish, fly fish for the, the cobia in the backs of the sharks. <laughs> well perfect example of how Fort Lauderdale especially but South Florida has pumped out this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. 
it's almost like a university of fishing life. Mm-hmm. And I had I had uh, Skip Smith on on a, a interview not too long ago, and he kind of took it around the world or whatever. But the nucleus of people that started to hear, and that grew, and that showed the rest of the world about the the beauty and the love of of saltwater fishing and um, it's just crazy how concentrated it is, and and you're 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 another product of the environment here. Well, if you were, just say we didn't have a lot of fishermen down here, and we didn't have a lot of good fishermen down here, it would be hard to come down here from say another state and move down here, and not have some kind of resemblance of somebody that's interested in the same things you are. I mean, if you had to come down here and nobody fished down here, this would be pretty pretty depressing. I mean, one, it'd take you forever to learn how to fish down here. And the, you know, the pier fishing is not what it was, you know, 35, right. 40 years ago. I mean, we were a long way from there. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. <laughs> but uh, I, I just think it does take a village, okay? It's not something you and I can do on our own. It's just got to be something that everybody buys into. And, you know, it's... And it's not only the fishermen. I mean, like if you're a husband and, and you fish and your wife doesn't like to fish. But there's still places, like my wife's an environmental chemistry professor. So I don't have the issues that, you know, we talk about this stuff all the time. And then, you know, when she comes home from work, we have dinner, we watch Jeopardy, she kicks my ass. <laughs> then, you know, we watch, when we watch a movie and go to bed. But uh, it's, it's, it's still something. My wife, my wife will run around the house with a jar, a piece of paper, for three or four days to catch a spider and take it outside and plant it. I mean, let it go into, into weeds. Well, that's where it needs to be. My house is beginning to look like Jurassic Park. <laughs> you can't see it anymore. In the fall, in, in, in the winter you can because the leaves are gone. But when the leaves come back in the spring, you know, I've got pictures of it I can show you on my phone. You just can't see the house anymore. <laughs> it's just, it's a jungle. But, uh, you know, we have lots of cats and dogs. Uh, so we're all happy, but uh, I gave up, you know, years ago. It's, it's you know, I could, there's some things you just, there's some battles you just can't fight. Some battles you can't fight, and there's things you have to live with. Yeah. And that's part of life. I'm not opposed to having so many trees and so many mines and this and that and the other. We have, in the front yard, we have these wire frames that we grow milkweed on for the butterflies. Then we have these other frames that we grow other stuff on for the bees. And you can drive by, and <laughs> you can't even see my mailbox anymore. You know, I had there was a girl online on Facebook <laughs> that used to paint these oversized uh, mailboxes. And I have a tarpon on the front of it, and I have a fly on the front, and I have another snook on the other side. And it's planted on a pole, and, you know, it was standalone mailbox at one time. Now we've got roses growing up this side. we got, uh, oh, God, these uh, ferns from going back to to the beginning of time, the oldest ferns on the planet, the ones that kill the dogs, the one with the seeds in the middle, I can't think of the name of them to save my life. They're everywhere. They're growing over the sidewalks, going over the park driveway. And then my poor lawn man comes over to cut the yard, he looks at it and he goes, <laughs> What do you want me to do with this? I know. Right, and then, and God forbid, he cuts the wrong thing or whatever. Well, my wife, she goes out there and puts her foot down. <laughs> Well, Jim, I think the audience is going to love the interview. I'm really glad that um, you spent some time. Excellent to get to know you and hear your story. And, I appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I think, um, well, when we started the Real Guy podcast, I mean, we're looking for real guys. And mm-hmm. you fall into that category, 
and um, I just think that the audience is going to be able to say, hey, on my real guide list, Jim Stenson, they're going to put you down. Because you're definitely on mine. Hope I didn't embarrass you. No, you did a great job. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks. Excellent. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> oh.